Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. Let the knowledge flow. Ask the Dean, episode 39, live from our thought out studios in Texas. Woo! Dr. Scott Wright, we are good to, glad, glad to have you back. Thank you. I'm I'm so very happy to be with you guys uh, today. It was it's been a little bit of a struggle here in here in Texas. So thank you for all your support all the way from tons of people. So it's been great. So from the mapped people and from friends and family and everybody, it's been absolutely fantastic. So thank you. Just think about the stories that you can tell in your personal statement when you apply to medical school now. That's right. That's right. <laughs> my, my, my resilience in overcoming adversity is amazing. Of course, now I have PTSD, but, you know, it, it is what it is. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. Just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And, and to think, right, we, we, we look at that situation and go, oh, Texas, how crazy they have their own electrical network Red, yeah. bad and blah 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 and then and then i was i was looking at research that that the u.s did a while ago that it would only take taking out nine substations across the whole state or across the whole country and the, the our whole power grid would go down nine yeah. locations our whole yeah. power grid would go down for months it's kind of scary kind of yeah. scary so that's what happens when you uh rely on capitalism for everything yeah that's right that's a whole different podcast and yeah right <laughs> welcome to ask the politics <laughs> yeah maybe we need to start like a um i can't afford a silo all by myself right but like maybe we can do a a groupon on a bunker <laughs> yeah there you go <laughs> uh, we, we're, silo. we're podcast now one of those one of those decommissioned nuclear silos we'll just oh. buy it and i was definitely looking at them online <laughs> <laughs> oh my well rachel grubbs how are you my friend i'm well i'm very happy scott's back i'm so happy scott has heat and power yes yes thank you that is good uh rachel why don't we um why don't we talk about the conversations that we were having this morning about mapped and kind of the the roadmap moving forward or we're thinking about um what we've wanted map to be all along was the ability to um when you add schools to your school list, we can look at the prereqs uh, that the school has and match them to yours. When you add a new course, we can look at that course and kind of make a guess on if it's a science course, is it, does it fulfill a prereq? For those of you watching right now, what are your thoughts on that? Do you have any concerns on how that would function? Are you just wanting it? I, I'm interested to know your thoughts if you if you want to add them. 
I know, Dr. Wright, you, you and I have talked about kind of just the concerns overall of if, if MAPT says one thing, but the application service says another, we just want to make sure that we're not saying that we're the final authority in all of this, but this is right. just the best guess. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, ultimately, even it's not up to the uh, application services, it's up to the individual medical schools in terms of what they you know, what they want to do. And so, uh, you know, I, I think what we want to do at MAPT is, is be thoughtful about that and really uh, understand kind of what the, what the hazards might be and, and do it in a way that's going to benefit the, the students, uh, you know, the, the most that we can, uh, giving them what's going to be helpful for them, but also doing it in a way that's going to be um, as accurate as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. So, yeah, just yeah. To, while folks out there are pondering to, to say again and kind of clarify what we're asking about is uh, for most of you, really, well, everybody who's watching this live and even a lot of folks catching it on the replay, when you entered your courses and mapped, we had you manually select whether or not the course fulfilled a prerequisite. We had you manually select whether or not it was calculated to science GPA. Um, and what we're talking about is trying to find some way to have, you know, an algorithm or keywords or a rubric that that decides that for you. And obviously, you would still have override, right? But we'd be taking uh, our collected data um, to try to give you that in advance to make the entering of courses faster. So, what are what are your thoughts? What are your concerns if we do that for you? Yeah. Yeah. All right. While they're pondering, they can leave a comment. Let's go ahead and jump into some of these questions that we have already listed here. First one up. I love when the question starts. I know Dr. Gray does not like this question, <laughs> but his 113 hours of clinical experience as a medical assistant over eight months, quote, enough. Mm. Check. I checked it off. Dr. Wright, yeah. is that enough? Um, you know what? I think I won't answer that directly. Um, what, what I would like to say is, as we say with so many of these questions, um, it depends a little bit on uh, other things in the application. But my, my feeling is that if there's some shadowing hours, if there's, um, you know, other things in the application, uh, if 113 hours of clinical experience as a medical assistant over eight months, uh, if that's it, if that's all, all the students got, I, I think that's maybe a little concerning to me that um, it's, uh, it, it, may, it may not be what I would be looking for. Um, I want a diversity of experiences. Uh, I certainly want to see a commitment to medicine. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, 113 hours over eight months, it's 133 hours a week. Yeah. That's not a whole lot. I just did the math. <laughs> yeah. That's not, that's not much over that long period of time. It, now my guess is that what, what I guess what I don't understand is I thought, you know, medical assistant is a job. Yeah. And it, typically, and if that's if that's your job, and you're only working 113 hours over eight months, that's a very part time job, like super part time job. So I, I guess what I would say is is probably not. Um, 
what I would want to see. I, I, but again, it, it depends on what, what else is there uh, as to what, you know, what, what might um, mitigate that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hate this question because it's yeah. like, is it yeah, check, hours yeah. four years ago? Is it, yeah. it, it, it or 113 hours four years ago over eight months? Is it eight months past the submission of your application and you don't have any of the experiences to lean on? Is it right. eight months just prior? Like there, there are so many, it's too many questions, questions here. Questions here. And yeah. is that all you have? And, yeah. and if that's all you have, I would say, no, it's not. Yeah. yeah, I agree. But you, you're right that that question, just the question in and of itself smacks of checking a box. You know, did I do enough to check the box? And that's, that's not, not a good mentality. Nope. It, it is not. Let me, let me tell you. So today I, I recorded five episodes of application renovation, which I, I'm trying really hard to only pick students who unfortunately didn't get into medical school or currently waitlisted or whatever, who have really good stats. Like the, the ones that I had today, they're like three, six, five, 14, three, seven, five, 16. This, my last one that I just recorded for getting on with, with you all was three, nine, nine science GPA, three, nine, six overall five, 21 MCAT. Ooh, wow. And they didn't get in only two interviews and zero acceptances, both waitlisted wow. at both schools. Wow. And it's, it's super clear as day in his application, why that happened. And I, I just, I can't reiterate it enough. And Scott, you know this, right? You, you saw this on the other end, but I, I see it on, on this side. You, you've seen it on both sides, actually, from the pre-L side and the, the med school side. is students who think that stats are all you need. Yeah. And that's all that med schools care about. And, and there are these students out here, and you can call it anecdotal if you want, but there are students out here who are amazing on paper stat-wise, who have zero idea, at least that they were able to communicate in their application, mm. why they're doing this that medical schools won't touch with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And I remember uh, years ago, I had a, a student when I was uh, on the undergrad side in, in pre-health advising where we, um, she came in to see me, she sat down, same kind of situation that you're just describing, good numbers, great GPA. I can't remember if she had taken the MK yet or not. I seem to think maybe she had, but anyway, she had zero zero clinical experience and when i raised that as an issue with her she got super offended uh and actually you know complained to my um <laughs> bosses and stuff and and uh you know and that i was being unrealistic and that i was being this or that or whatever well she she eventually got some clinical experience she did get into medical school and she did come back later and apologize and really express that um that she sees now on the other end of things kind of the bigger picture and stuff and so i i, I definitely think you're right ryan that that the that the issue um is is a big one and medical schools really are trying to be holistic in their approach to these things and not be, you know, just centered in on, on the numbers. They're looking at what is your commitment to medicine? How do you illustrate that uh, over a long-term uh, 
experience or multiple experiences and uh and what does that mean to you and and what what have those things meant to you and that's that gets down to the the so what versus the what kind of thing that we talk about all the time and uh so you're you're exactly right ryan it's it's not all about the numbers and and uh it really is an issue of mentality often yeah all right, next question here. If I'm applying to both DO and MD school, should I make my personal statement for a Comus answer why DO or is why medicine sufficient? I wanted to use the same personal statement from AMCAS. Yeah. So I, I'm going to give you my answer based on please. what a Comus did. <laughs> please. I don't care if you want it. I'm going <laughs> to <laughs> um, Based on what a Comus did last year or two years ago now. They changed their essay length from 4,500 characters to 5,300 to match AMCAS. AMCAS, yep. In my mind, that action said, use the same essay. Yep. I, yep. <laughs> the, the, the application doesn't specifically talk about osteopathic medicine. Um, yeah. In my, my, new, uh, my new application book, I, I dig up all of the prompts and what they focus on. Secondary essays are where you were. Yeah. You will most likely talk about why osteopathic medicine. Yep. The personal statement is why do you want to be a physician? Yep. And again, getting back to application renovation today, one of the applications I reviewed was for a student who um, who applied to a Comus and had one sentence in the application that said osteopathic medicine. <laughs> it was like, blah, 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 blah. And this is why I like osteopathic medicine. Just completely out of the blue, didn't really fit with the rest of the context of the sentence, but just felt the need. Like I, I have to mention osteopathic medicine and that just made it worse. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. I think that, I think you're right that the secondary application is where that Often, you know, where schools will want to explore those things, where the student will have an opportunity to explore those those things in terms of osteopathic medicine and a commitment to that or a recognition of what it is all about and, and stuff like that. And obviously, in the interview, that's going to come up uh, at almost every osteopathic school. Now, you know, it's interesting. Allopathic schools, it's not going to come up at all. They're not going to say, why allopathic medicine? Not um, <laughs> right, and yep. but the osteopathic schools it will definitely come up uh, yep. in an interview, and uh, and I, I but I think that um, uh, I, I agree with you. I think that the you know, and even even though uh, the TMDSAS uh, um, personal statement length is is slightly shorter uh, than the AMCAS and ACOMAS length. Almost, ex- you, you should be able to use the same one for all three with a s- small adjustment on the TMDSAS one. Yeah, that's that's what I tell students to do is is write the fifty three hundred character one, and if you're applying to TMDSAS as well, yeah, just cut find three hundred characters to cut yeah. out. Yeah. yeah, there's usually some to cut out there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and while yeah, we're on and, this and, topic, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, and that's it. Right, bringing up TMDSAS. You apply to MD and DO schools through TMDSAS with one personal statement. Yes, that's correct. Um, that's correct. What I was going to say is while we're on this topic, uh, MAPT members, you can go into MAPT to the Applications tab and look at the personal comments and personal statements prompts. I mean, you could also go create yourself a free 
account for AM Casanacomas, but it's baked right into map now. So yeah. you can see how very similar those prompts are. Yeah. Um, and honestly, how vague they are, you know, yeah. like they, they the, both the, offer some context, but the yeah. prompt itself for AMCAS is use the what space do you want to provided. say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Use the space provided to explain why you want to go to medical school. Yeah. Yeah. The, you the know, team, you notice I, how it doesn't say use the space provided to show that you are good enough to be a, a physician. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's what most students interpret it as. Yeah. Why think, medical school? I think the T the team, the SAS one is a little bit more specific. Um, but I think in general, uh, you know, that doesn't change the, 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 the reality that you should be able to use the same one for all three. Yeah. And again, you can see word for word the prompts, NAPT yep. members. On so head on into applications and you'll see how similar they are. Yeah. Yep. Uh, cool. All right. All right. Um, I won't throw this next one. Oh, that's just the feedback on what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, a lot of comments. I guess so. Circling back to our talk about clinical. So somebody wrote in. Uh, Dr. Wright spoke about commitment to clinical. What does it mean if I had eight years of full-time clinical job, then took another six years of gap and everything? Okay. Is it fine to have about four weeks of clinical? Sounds like it's been off and on, but steady. Hmm. That's the way I read that. If I had eight years of full-time clinical job and then took another six years of gap in everything, that pre-med has to do due to personal reasons. I've about three years before application, it is fine to have four hours so a week. Ah. Going, going back to what we were mentioning earlier, like we said three, that 3.3 hours a week. Yeah. Like yeah. that wasn't a, a knock on only 3.3 hours a week. It was a knock on 113 hours over eight months like that's all you have yeah just equals 3.3 like yeah. if someone for a long time has this extended commitment and then either life changes and need a new job or whatever that looks like it's consistently getting four hours a week for they said what three years away from a yeah morning? yeah that's fine yeah i agree completely yeah the broader context that's that's available now uh helps with helps with my answer and yours yeah. you know what what you guys are all saying is yeah i that that the picture now is is a little bit more clear and i agree with you ryan yeah yep. yeah i know um it's tempting right because you want rubrics, right? You guys want to hear numbers. You want to hear metrics that you can say, I have accomplished, but yep. that's not really what clinical is about. It's about showing a long-term commitment and interest in working with patients. Yeah. So there are a lot of ways to shape that. Yeah, I, absolutely. Let me, let me ask you, Scott. So I, I, again, just because it's top of mind, um, this actually, this, the same student I was talking about, the Sacomas application earlier, uh, he's an engineer, works full-time as an engineer, does have clinical experience, does have good clinical experiences, has been given feedback that he is not showing that he's committed to medicine because he's not quitting his full-time job where he probably makes a good amount of money to focus on healthcare-related things. And I, I told him, like, you don't need to quit your job. You don't, you don't need to go get a low-paying job as a scribe or an EMT right. just to show that you're committed. Right. Now, that's not to say that maybe you work 30 hours a week instead of 40 as an engineer to give you a little bit more time <clears throat> for more clinical experience, but it's not an all-or-none thing. That's Quitting your job, it doesn't make you go, oh, I, you're committed now. I see that. 
Yeah, I agree with that completely. I, I don't like the idea of forcing somebody to, 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 you know, change the entire reality of their life to, to make it fit into this sort of stereotypical picture of what somebody thinks a pre-med pass should look like. Yeah, um, particularly I, yeah. one that assumes you're wealthy enough to not have income. Exactly. Like that's, that's the exactly exact right. opposite of what we're about here. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So I, I agree with you completely, uh, Ryan and, and Rachel, you too on that one. All right. So changing topics. What do you do? What do you do? How do you do? What do you do when you see yourself plateauing in MCAT studying? I've consistently held 509, 510 on the past few tests, and I'm wondering how to break through. I test March 26. Rachel, you're up. Sounds like a Rachel question. Yeah. Mm. All right. So first of all, uh, you don't have to tell me, but ask yourself. I don't really care that you're getting 509, 510. I mean, that's great. Good job. What I want to know is what you're getting on each of your sections, right? So um, I've mentioned this many times. I'll continue to mention it. If you go to the Blueprint MCAT blog, they've got an article that my old colleague Brian Schnedeker wrote like seven or eight years ago. That's still true. It's called, How Do I Know? Am I Ready to Take the MCAT? And it walks you through doing analysis of your last four or five practice tests and looking at the average of the section scores. So that's sort of step one is get away from the composite and look at the up and down patterns by section. And then if you're plateauing at a number that, you know, is pretty good, I respect that you want more, you've got a month, no reason not to shoot for more, then you need to be diving way deeper than just your section score, right? You need to be looking at every question, whether you got it right or wrong. So it might take you one to two times as long to review your MCAT as it took you to take it. So if you're at the point a month from your MCAT, my guess is you're probably done with content. You're probably done with drilling sections. You're probably just taking full links at this point. You might only have time to take one a week because you spend eight hours taking the exam and then another eight to 15 hours reviewing it each week. Um, and really looking at every question, whether you got it right or wrong, what the takeaway is. And, um, you know, depending on the company you're using for your prep, you may have some detailed analysis to look at that'll show you breakdown by critical reasoning skill or, or topic. And you need to start zeroing in on both the tiny little things you're still getting wrong, but also anything you're getting right when it comes to critical reasoning, how you can apply that to other questions. Mm -hmm. Hope that helps. Yeah. Good answer. Good, good. And to not freak out about plateaus, right? They're, they're uh, there. Yeah, they they're normal. And honestly, you might go down again. I mean, I'm not trying to jinx you, but that is most progress looks like this before it goes up, you know? So if you get a 507, you might get a 512 next time. And again, go back to those section scores. Yeah. All right. My second favorite question here. Oh, how do you interpret medical school or AMCAS stats in the sense that we have access to information regarding median MCAT and GPA scores? So hypothetically, if our GPA falls below a median GPA score, let's say the median is 396 for the school. <laughs> oh, Lord. Then yeah. are students already at a disadvantage applying to the school with a GPA MCAT below median? Obvious letters of rec, research, extracurricular play a role, but I'm curious if medical admissions committees have these stats in the back of their mind. Oh, Lord. I like this one. I talk about this one all the time. 
So talk about it. <laughs> Dr. Scott Wright, if, if a medical school has a median, right, and, and I'm glad the student correctly said median, the MSAR shows median, not mean or average. If, if a medical school has a median, let's say of a, a three, nine, six, as the student says, which is, would is, not be true, yeah, but anyway, true. yeah, uh, let, let's <clears> say it's a three, like, let's, let's, let's go three, eight as a median GPA. And a student has a three, six GPA. Should they go, Oh, I'm not good enough for this school. No, no, no. Easy, right? Half yeah. of the class has below a 3.8. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that is the exact. And, and that's what I don't understand about this question is it doesn't, it, it uses this term median and it's talking about this median, you know, of th- this magical, uh, you know, median of uh, 3.96. And, and then it says, at a disadvantage to applying to that school with a GPA below the median. Well, 50% of the people that got in were below the median. So yeah. why on earth would you not apply there? Yeah. I don't, I just don't understand the question. Um, yeah. yeah. So let me, let me ask, I understand the question cause I get it all the time and, and you do too. The, the question at the end of the day comes down to, uh, especially students who are more limited in their funding yes. in, in terms of how many schools they can apply to. And that's a whole different conversation about how ridiculous it is to charge per school, um, which is why I right. like TMBSAS and it's just yeah. one flat fee yeah. is, um, is how do I know if I have limited funds to apply to medical schools Right. And this is the flack that I get when I talk about don't use stats to apply to medical school is students push back. I'm like, I can only apply to five schools, 10 schools, right. whatever it is. Yeah. I need to make sure I'm applying to schools where I have a chance. And, and that thought process alone in my mind just doesn't logically make sense because assuming you have good stats, not amazing 4.0521 MCAT, but you have good stats and, and we can't really define that for anyone. But assuming that the, at the end of the day, we are lacking data. Scott, and you heard my talk about this at, at, in Toronto. Yes. Is, is medical schools don't publish. Correct. Their cutoffs, not all medical schools publish their cutoffs. Right. And schools have cutoffs and they, yeah. some will say we review all applications and that just means we don't have cutoffs, but we'll, we're still going to rank them <laughs> highest stats yes. to lowest stats. And we may not yeah. get to yours, but, <clears throat> but if, if schools would publish over the course of five years, right, their, their concerns, the, the excuse that I got was, well, if, if we publish the lowest MCAT score from, from the class of 2024, everyone's going to know who that student is. So I'm like, well, that's pretty crappy that you would think that. How, how would you know? Be like, oh, it's the Brown student who got the lowest score. Like, like who, who, would, who would think that? Like, how am I going to know out of a class of 200 people? Who's got the lowest Who's score? The lowest score. It's ridiculous <clears throat> to think yeah. that unless someone is thinking in, in yeah. that obviously racist way that I just said it. Right. It, it just doesn't make sense. And so maybe we publish like here's the last five years. Over the last five years, our average lowest MCAT score that we accepted was a 498. 
mm-hmm. or was a 502, whatever mm-hmm. that may be. Mm-hmm. And our average lowest GPA, science GPA, was a 3-2. Mm-hmm. Right? That would give amazing detail into a process for students to go, okay, the average over the last five years, lowest science GPA was a 3-2. I have a 3-4. Their median is a three seven. That means I probably have. I, I'm competitive in the ballpark. Yeah, to mm-hmm. still get a look. <clears throat> right. Let me apply. Right. Right. And so I, I just it it pisses me off that schools are are not more transparent about this process and and come up with excuses as why they can't be um, to the detriment of students, which is why we see average number of schools being applied to every year going up and up and up 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 and up up. up. and schools benefit from that. Double AMC benefits from that. Yeah. Liaison and Acomas benefit from that. Yeah. Like it's, it's a, effed up process. Yeah. So here's why I want to chime in from a different lens, because I think I know, I mean, there's a lot of reasons students ask us these questions, but one of the reasons students fixate on stats is because um, if you were fortunate enough to have guidance in your college admissions process, you were told that this is the way it works, right? That you got to look at your SAT, ACT, and you got to look at your GPA and you got to look at your class rank. And then that all of those things matter, not just to get in, but because colleges are also unfairly fixated with their U.S. News World Report ranking, right? So, like, there's a reason that schools like Harvard will tell kids with 3.2 to apply. They may have a chance of getting in, but it's more about Harvard wants to be able to say they turn away 95% of the applicants. So, they're happy to have people apply who aren't aren't probably in league for the 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 class that they're accepting that year because they want to turn away a lot of people and med schools don't play that game i mean there's a lot with the med school application process that i do think is unjust or just honestly could just be more transparent even if it is just um but they're not playing a rankings game like that and that's where a lot of that data stuff comes from so yeah if, and again, I know people are asking this question from a lot of reasons, right? Maybe it's how many schools should I apply to? Maybe it's I'm looking for one that's a match. But the idea of match, right? If you're thinking safety, match, reach, doesn't really work like that with med school. Mm-hmm. You know, there really are no safeties for one thing. <clears throat> right. Um, right. And I don't think that there's a big distinguishing between match and reach in, in a process where about 40% of the people who apply get in. Like everything's a little bit of a reach and you just try anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I mean, we spent a lot of time kind of talking about why this process is unjust. What I want to remind anyone who's really fixated on the numbers is Brian's advice is don't look, just yep. don't look at the numbers. <laughs> uh, my advice is if you have to look, look at the 10% cutoff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's my advice. At least then you're you getting have. a, what yeah. I said, that's my advice too. If you have to, then look at the 10th percentile. Yeah. 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 But let, let me, let me extend my rant. Just, just <laughs> <laughs> this, this I'll, is, I'll give you the spotlight. Back up on the soapbox. <laughs> oh, wait, wrong that's guy. me. That's wrong me. Guy. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm back up on my soapbox. So, so this is the, the explanation that I give and, and it may completely be false, but it makes sense in my mind is, if students are 
only looking at the MSAR for picking schools to apply to. And and they go onto the MSAR and go, okay, I have a 3.8 GPA and a 5.15 MCAT score. And these are the schools that I'm going to apply to. And the other students who have 3.5s and 5.10s, these are the schools that I'm going to apply to. Because this is what the MSAR is for. I'm going to pick my schools based on my stats. What, in theory students are doing year in and year out is perpetuating the same stats year in and year out. When you only give schools the opportunity to accept and reject students within a given GPA range, because that's what the MSAR says, well, guess what the MSAR next year is going to say? It's going to have this same exact GPA and MCAT range. You're not giving the schools an opportunity to tell you yes or no you are saying yes or no before that ever happens. Yep. Yep. You're, you're, you are uh, acting as your own admissions committee and saying no. Yep. Yeah. And what's, I mean, funny, like funny, sad, not funny. haha. What's funny about that is that, one of the things we hear from from you guys a lot is like you feel sometimes like people in your life are telling you no, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. you're frustrated with mentors or work supervisors or doctors, you know, or you know whoever who are who are saying, "Oh, you got those two C's? I don't know." Or you're a full time engineer? I don't know. Like, don't tell yourself no either. Yeah. All right, I'm off my soapbox. We can continue. Okay. Uh, let's see where I lost my thread here. Okay. That's a lot, a lot of good ones today. Yeah. In short, I have an ample amount of teaching experience and absolutely want teaching to be a part of my career in medicine. After my clinical experience, I know I want to combine the best of both worlds, best of both worlds, medicine and teaching. I'm a non-trad and know that my career goals are to go into academic medicine in some form. Should I be specific about my aspirations on my application? Hmm. 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 Um, I think it would be beneficial uh, to, to connect the two. Um, But, you know, I, I think until you're into the environment of medical education and, and, and what that looks like, uh, you may not know for sure, but I think from your vantage point uh, early on in the process, um, I think that expressing your how much you like teaching and uh, maybe mentoring and uh, that you want that to be a part of your uh, of your career. Um, I think it, it makes a lot of sense uh, to, to do that. Uh, that doesn't replace, obviously, clinical experience and, and et cetera in terms of uh, uh, what you want to have present in your application. But I think in terms of the personal statement, for example, or in the application itself, connecting all that together <coughs> uh, makes makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that... Uh, you know, it's getting harder and harder to keep uh, good students in, in academic medicine because it's, it's just not as lucrative uh, as uh, private practice or, or whatever. Uh, so, so academic medicine can be, uh, you know, can be a bit of a challenge for, for uh, students to see the, the, the benefit in terms of the bottom line on their budget, for example. Uh, but I think that... Uh, uh, if you know for for you know for sure that teaching is really important to you, you like it, and I, I say go for it. 
Yeah, that that kind of stuff can come through. I, I typically wouldn't recommend it for a personal statement, um, but that stuff can come through in the activity list where you're mm-hmm. going to talk about teaching because that's what you've been mm-hmm. doing for a while, and and making a, a comment in there about your your future uh, as an educator in in medicine. I think yeah. is an appropriate comment. Yeah, and, and so, there are some secondary application essays which will ask about if you had to dream about your what your future would look like. Um, you know, what, what do you anticipate that might be looking like at least at this point in your in your in your progress? And so that that is not a uh, probably a, a not common a, a question in a secondary application, but it's not rare either. And so I think that uh, you know that would be another place where that might come out. Yeah. How is a patient transport aid viewed by medical schools? If I have the option to do scribing or transport, I assume scribing would be would give me better clinical experience. Generally, I would say, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I've I've heard from some students who who don't, or from I've heard from some students who have heard from medical schools that there are some medical schools out there that don't consider transport as clinical experience. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's, it's not something that you can really control. I think right. uh, some students will say, should I reach out to schools? I'm like, no, just mark it as clinical on your application and let them do what they're going to do with it. <laughs> hope, yeah. hope they'll like it. Yeah. Well, and like we've said so many times with jobs that are uh, sort of more entry level, take transport if that's the way to get the job and then see if you can. Yeah shift yeah. later. Par- parlay yeah. that into something different. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Good, good use of parlay. I've definitely had plenty of people transport me who could have used more training. <laughs> like, and I don't mean, I just mean in like the basic stuff, like I sprained my ankle yet again and you just pushed my foot into the door. Ow. <laughs> so if Why you're one of the people who can in? really steal or steal, steer me in a wheelchair and not knock me into things, I will let you a lot. <laughs> uh, I, I'm excited for the day when we have the, the Amazon warehouse robots that just slide under a, a stretcher, lift it up and then just take you yeah. like that's wherever yeah yeah i agree uh, <laughs> you're gonna have robots in the robots in the uh in the or then why not robots transporting them from you know one yep. place to another yep exactly well inputting activities on map to find myself feeling uneasy listing let alone describing relief or volunteer work how would you recommend describing these experience without sounding self-centered prideful all while not undermining the work itself well, so I, I, I do have an opinion, uh, a definite opinion about this question because so, so I, I think in my experience, a, a lot of applicants fear coming across as arrogant or prideful or what was the other word that they use in this uh, uh, self-centered. Um, yeah. And I think the chances of that happening are really low. In other words, I think if you're a relatively well-adjusted, centered, balanced person and uh, you're going to input the the things that you're doing and you're going to be talking about what you did, I mean, the application is all about you. Of course, it's going to be self-centered. It's all about you. Uh, But you're not going to – I mean, the chances of you coming across as – as prideful or arrogant are really low. And, uh, and, and I think if you're, and, and my feeling is 
if you're asking that question, then it's not going to happen because you're self-aware, number one. Yeah. So just the fact that you're asking that question and that it's this is on your mind, uh, you know, you're not going to be coming across that way. Is is my my gut reaction is that I wouldn't worry about it. Just do the application, answer the questions, describe what you did, what you got out of those experiences. Um, it, you, you know, the the I, I I really literally over the thousands of applications I reviewed. Uh, over my 25 years in, 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 in uh, medical education, I would say it is, I could count really very, very, very low numbers where I thought it came across as really, you know, kind of outrageous. So yeah. uh, it's not going to happen. And the the other side is is often concerning or concerning for students is, especially in a disadvantaged essay, is I don't want to feel like they need to pity me. Right. right. It's kind of the, yeah. and it's the same response is and, unless you are trying to, to get that sentiment across, then they're, you're probably just fine. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this person literally meant in the activity section or if they meant like, I'm actually applying this year and I'm working on my official activities descriptions. Um, but I just wanted to make that distinction because especially if you are not applying this year and you're just sort of logging your activities as you go, but that's the whole point of the reflection is just brain dump. Don't even yeah. worry about how you sound, just yeah. get it all down because yeah. later you can go and look at, you know, that those notes that are going to be way too long and way too rambly and cut them down. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, if you're worried about how it sounds, then I would say say it out loud to a friend and turn on, you know, the Google voice type to talk, to talk so it'll type yeah. when you talk. Because yeah. you'll be surprised how natural it will come out if you just talk about talk it. Talk it out, yeah. yeah. Which, um, just a random thought that popped into my head. Uh, this, is, this is mapped. Um, this is how map un- unfolds for everyone in, in real time. When you mentioned, right, just do a brain dump and don't think about it. Uh, I had this random thought that came across my mind when students are doing these random dumps in the activity section or as uh, with new updates, it'll be in your courses. Mm -hmm. It'll be as part of your MCAT score. Um, Mm -hmm. You can have these reflection boxes uh, and your courses. I say courses. Um, Mm -hmm. You can have that in in your your, uh, reflection boxes. I think it'd be interesting to, to think about the ability to mark those as private so that an advisor doesn't have access to some thoughts that a student may have. Mm, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. I agree with that. I, Cause that might um, cause a little bit of hesitation yep. uh, to, to put things out there. Just that dump uh, mentality. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, if you guys want to comment, if that's interesting to you, if you'd like to be able to mark things private um, so that they're not visible with when you give read-only access to your advisor, we'd be interested to know if you'd like that feature. Yeah. All right, we probably have time for one or two more. Yeah, for sure. After doing some research, future pun intended, I found that NIH grants are given out 800 times more often to MDs versus DOs. As I am interested in pursuing some research in medical school, is that enough reason to the question why MD over DO? 
So here's, here's where let's use our research brain. Correlation mm-hmm. doesn't equal causation. Right. The, the question is, if this is a true statement, which I don't know if it is, uh, if the NIH truly does give out 800 times more often to MDs versus ZOs, <clears throat> the question is why? Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it just MD because they're MDs versus DOs? We don't know, right? That's just what it says right there. Um, what we do know is that DOs are still relatively new in the in the medical world um, that there are far, far, far more MDs graduating every year than DOs um, that MDs, the education has typically access to, um, to these big urban academic centers where research is usually being done. And so, Right. MD students are typically more exposed to research, potentially. And, There's also and, more MD, PhD dual programs than mm-hmm. there are DO, PhD dual programs. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So they, they take that exposure from medical school, the MD students do, and continue that forward in their career. But that's not to say that as a DO, if you are really interested in research, you can't go forge your own path and go get those yeah. grants too. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And I think that... You know, I think that, um, you know, you, you set your goals the way you set them. But I, I do think that you have to look when, when you're looking at the individual medical schools, whether it's D or ND, you have to look, look at what are their values? What is their mission? Uh, what do they do at their institution? Where is their institution located? Is it, is it uh, within the context of a, a general academic um, institution, uh, or is it a standalone uh, and doesn't really have any connection to anything outside of anything outside of medicine? So, for example, uh, I think a couple of good examples for uh, in the DO world are Michigan State and uh, and University of North Texas, uh, where these are DO schools, but they're within the context of an academic health science center. They're within the context of the broader scope of what higher education is all about, which is, you know, one of those things is research uh, is what higher ed is is all about. And so I think you you have to look, drill down to the individuality of the of the medical schools uh, and and, in matching your goals as a as a student and ultimately as a practitioner and make sure that they match with the goals and the values and the mission of the institutions you're looking at. And, uh, and just, you know, uh, because you're, I, I think uh, in, in some cases you're right. You, you can look at an individual DO school and say this DO school is, is not, generally speaking, uh, a big research institution is not going to it's not doing a lot of stuff it's not you know their focus is teaching their focus is primary care their focus is whatever so yeah um as a quick addendum so we sort of addressed the first part of this the second part is is that enough to answer the question why md over do and i don't know if you misheard us before we were actually saying that why MD over DO is rarely ever asked. Yeah. DO over MD is sometimes asked, but um, if you think about often in culture with much thornier issues than allopathic versus osteopathic, the dominant group centers 
So marginalized groups are forced to express themselves and dominant groups are sort of given a given. That's kind of the way it goes with MDDO to some degree. Like there's an assumption that that's the norm. Now I disagree with that assumption, but there are way more schools that are MD. Like you can't deny the numbers. Right. Um, So yeah. And worldwide, you know, osteopathic medicine only exists in the United States at any at at, at any you know at an education world. level, right? And any yeah, there are osteopaths so, in other countries, but they're more like chiropractors, right? Like the right. way we use that word is different, right? Right. And so I, you know, I think that you. So I agree with you uh, completely, Rachel, on that. Yeah. That so, yeah. Just just a, a extension of that point. Rachel, Mm -hmm. I, I don't like the term osteopath for that specific reason. Right. I I prefer osteopathic physician. Right. uh, Because osteopath is a career field in the rest of the world, which is basically like a chiropractor, physical therapist kind of person. Yeah. Our osteopaths are osteopathic physicians. And I I got mad at CNN when they were talking about Trump's physician being an an osteopath. I'm like, he's not an osteopath. He's an osteopathic physician, which it it, it confuses people because then they go and look up what's an osteopath and they see, oh, it's not even a physician because Mm -hmm. they're looking at what the rest of the world calls an osteopath. Yeah. I mean, in my mind. okay, so it's, you know, doctor of medicine, doctor of osteopathy, doctor. They're just doctors. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I mean, I, when I see my DO doctors, I don't, I, well, usually I call my doctors by my first name. Cause you know, I want that kind of parody in my relationships, <laughs> but if I'm calling them by their title, I just say doctor. Yeah. I don't yeah. care about the DO versus MD. Yeah. And I think generally speaking, uh, the, the general public, uh, doesn't care yep. and they just want to get, they, they just want to feel better. You know, they, you know, they, they, they're, and, 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 and I would say chances are often the case, particularly when you're talking about uh, urgent, you know, uh, acute issues that, the, the, you know, they're not even going to know what, what, whether you're a DO or an MD, they're, they're just going to, you know, so, yeah. Yep. Um, and so an we- extension of that, that question is I would like to see, what the NIH uh, grants are in the last 10 years, right? Is mm-hmm. that 800 to, to one? Is that over the course of the lifetime, even before? Yeah. Yeah. DOs? Or is it? Yeah. Yeah. That'd be interesting to know. Right. Can we, can we do one more? I think that one about financial aid would be a great one. To yeah. That's what I was going to put up. So uh, our friend here forgot about the 400 character limit. So we're not going to be able to get it all, but we can get, the bulk of the first yeah. question, at least. I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer this. I'm anxious about financial aid concerning medical schools, specifically is working a full-time and part-time job after college frowned upon in the sense that upon admission, a medical school may offer you a smaller financial aid package or deem you not uh, qualified for financial aid. What has been your experience along these lines? I guess part two of this question is how full-time, part-time clinical and or research jobs are considered by something and admissions committee. Yeah. yeah. So I, I really like this question because I think this concerns a lot of students and I think it, the, the, the point here and I, I the, the points that you made earlier, Rachel, uh, contrasting undergraduate institutions with medical schools is applicable to this question as well. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the financial aid picture for medical school students is so much different than it is for an undergraduate institution. 
an undergraduate. They don't, they don't typically medical schools are not doing a whole lot of leveraging of financial aid to get, you know, these, you know, to get their class and stuff like that. I think that, um, you know, what you, what you find in, in, in the medical school world is that they're, Different schools are going to have different um, ways that they allot financial aid. And, and when I ta- when I say financial aid, there's different types of financial aid. There's there's institutional aid, scholarship, you know, such as scholarships or grants, and then there's there is federal, you know, or state aid. Uh, some states have their own aid programs for medical school students or or, or whatever. So, but w- what I what I want to say is that. Um, generally speaking, there is plenty of money to go around to go to medical school. Now, most of that money is going to be loan money for for almost every student. If you don't if you, if you don't have super rich parents that can finance this whole thing, which man, I wish and wouldn't that be great? Uh, <laughs> Me, please. I know, right? Uh, but if you don't have you know a buttload of money sitting somewhere, then you're going to be taking out loans. Uh, you're going to be, uh, and those loans, even the loans uh, for medical school education are different than they are at the undergraduate level. You have a longer period of time for, uh, for uh, repayment. Um, often, often medical schools will try to lump a lot of uh, their institutional aid into um uh, into the first or second year, uh, because that that makes a difference in terms of the the uh, w- when you're repaying the loans in terms of the amount of interest that you're paying uh, on those loans. And so, uh, so I think that the what I get as a sense from this question or is a, an uneasiness about number one: Am I going to be able to finance medical school education? And then. And and yes, the the answer is yes. Um, if you're a, if you're a citizen, a U.S. citizen, or a permanent resident, uh, then you're going to be able to finance your medical education. Now, the the other part of this question is about if I work, 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 work really hard and save up a whole bunch of money uh, to be able to help me pay for medical school, is that going to affect how much? Uh, and, and the answer is really no. It's not going to affect it at any, you know, at, at any. Based, yeah, it's really not need based at all. It's 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 what they're really looking for is how do we get these kids through medical school? And uh, and so I think uh, I think this is a good question. It's an important question. Uh, but I for this particular question, I, I would say don't worry about that. If you're in my advice to, to all of you guys that are listening to this podcast or watching this video or are certainly live now is in preparing for medical school, save as much money as you can. Pay off as much debt as you can before you get to medical school. Watch out for credit cards, and uh, and then that's that's what you can do. Uh, that's you know that's what is is uh, is is a great is a great deal for you. Yep. Um, and I remember last year at National Pre Med Day we had um, Travis. student Travis Travis Hornsby from Student Loan Planner, and he was talking about making decisions that help you save money. Um, and he's worked with paying off debt for a lot of people who are have MDs and GDs. And his rationale was 
pay close attention to where you live and what you drive and don't worry about anything else. So like yep. you may have to suck it up and get a roommate or even the two or three roommates. Mm -hmm. um, you may have to drive a crappy used Corolla. I love my used Corolla. <laughs> 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 uh, I have a Prius now. I gave my used Corolla to my nephew. Now he's driving it, <laughs> but <laughs> I love that thing. Um, but other than that, he was like, if you want the Starbucks, get the Starbucks. If you want the new backpack, if you need the new laptop for school, like, just buy it, right? But he was like, just, you know, save in those two big areas if you can. Yeah, and yeah. I think uh, that attitude to me makes a lot of sense because you work so hard. Little luxuries can go a long way to making you feel better on a daily, weekly basis. But yeah. you've got to save at the big places. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Cool. Yeah. That is all we have. Uh, yeah, it's all for today. Wow. Well, it's been a great uh, time today. Yes. It was, yeah, you're just happy you have power and water. I'm just, I'm just happy. I, yeah, this is exactly right. I'm not freezing my ass off right now, so I'm happy. <laughs> uh, and I'll tell you, I, I think I told Rachel and you and Ryan this before, but the at one point, but I'll tell it to the to the bigger picture of people. Uh, last week, I was I've never been so cold in my whole life, by the way. And at one point in uh, it was 41 degrees inside my apartment. Uh, and I was just and, and I, will, I, I will tell you that I ended up doing something that I will ne I never in a million years would have ever thought that I would have done. And that is because uh, I have a fireplace in my in my uh, apartment, but I, I ran out of wood. I ran out of I not only did I go around my apartment identifying things in my apartment that were potential burn things. Did you burn my book? I burned books. <laughs> I burned I burned 10 books. Wow. 10, ten big um, 10 big uh, uh, hardcover books. And I try to be selective in terms of what books I burned. It wasn't because of content or anything like that. There was nothing philosophy, f philosophical about it. It was just, what's the biggest book I got, and what can I burn? Uh, <laughs> it, wow. I, it was, yeah, it was, it was really scary. So, yeah, I think um, one of the things people sometimes don't understand when you come from a colder climb is how different the buildings are. Yeah, you know, like yeah. Um, I mean, one forty-one degrees inside your house is really cold, but yeah. also just you know, the houses there aren't built for that kind of weather. Oh, so it yeah. it seeps in everywhere. You oh, know, like yeah. the walls are cold and there's, oh, you know, yeah. you can feel drafts at the window and the door. Yeah. yeah. It's just not the same. Mm -mm. It was, it, it was not the same. And, you know, I, I, I'm thankful that I made it. I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, I had uh, friends that I could go and stay with once I could actually get around, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, tr you know, travel and stuff, but, uh, all in all, everything's good. So we're, we're back to, uh, <clears throat> now, of course I do have to say this, uh, here we are uh, one week later. So this all, all the shit started happening last Monday. Um, and, uh, here we are a week later today. It is 72 and sunny <laughs> in Austin, Texas. There you go. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, erratic weather. Yep. Yep. Good to see everybody. Yes. Right. See you guys Bye. next week. Bye.
This is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.